Good afternoon. Welcome to the F.A. Hayek Auditorium at the Cato Institute for our book forum today, uh, a, a book titled Capitalism at Work, Business, Government, and Energy, uh, written by uh, Robert Bradley, who is here with us. Uh, I've been at Cato for 17 years now. When I first started at Cato as the young uh, director of energy studies, uh, Rob was awaiting me. Rob has been affiliated with the Cato Institute for at least as long as I've been here, and I know probably five or six years uh, longer than that. Uh, He's been a tremendous uh, uh, presence uh, at Cato and in the energy debate at large, and I can't thank him enough for his work in the energy arena, making my work a lot easier since I get to build off a lot of the academic and intellectual work that Rob had pioneered here at Cato and elsewhere over the years. Uh, besides being a mainstay of, uh, of the free market community on energy issues, Rob, of course, was also uh, a 16-year uh, veteran of the Enron Corporation and a confidant of CEO Ken Lay, which, uh, of course, led him to write this book. Uh, Rob is the uh, founder and chairman of the Institute for Energy Research and the author of numerous books and essays on the history and uh, political economy of energy. In addition to uh, his new book that we're here to discuss uh, this afternoon, Rob is the author of The Mirage of Oil Protection from 1998, Oil, Gas, and Government in 1996, which is 2,000 pages worth of historical analysis, the history of U.S. oil and gas regulation and and public policy, Uh, absolutely the definitive work on that topic. Uh, He's also the author of Julian Simon of the Triumph of Energy Sustainability, published in 2000, and Energy the Master Resource, published in 2004. Beyond his affiliation as adjunct scholar here at Cato, Rob is an adjunct scholar at the Competitive Enterprise Institute, a visiting fellow at the Institute of Economic Affairs in London, and an honorary senior research fellow at the Center for Energy Economics at the University of Texas at Austin. Bradley received a B.A. in economics with honors from Rollins College, where he received the S. Truman Olin Award in economics, a master's in economics from the University of Houston, and a Ph.D. in political economy with distinction from International College. In 2002, he received the Julian Simon Memorial Award for his work on energy and sustainable development. So there is scarcely anybody in America who is better positioned to talk about energy policy and Enron's contribution to our understanding of the political economy of energy than the author we have with us today. Uh, please join me in welcoming Rob Bradley. Thanks, Jerry, for that introduction. Um, sometimes I tell people that have given me very nice introductions, you can streamline it a little bit. All you need to say is that I worked at Enron for 16 years and I'm one of the smartest guys in the room. (laughs) I'll begin my presentation with a cartoon that some of you might have seen. This has been posted on the uh, website, The Austrian Economist by Peter Betke. And basically, uh, we all know that capitalism is dead. If Enron didn't prove it, the current financial Uh, meltdown has. And uh, uh, David Bowes, Tom Palmer, they're not here uh, this morning. They might be watching it uh, from their computers, but I just know they're taking their Mises and Hayek books and putting them in the trash can, and they're reading Das Kapital and all the rest of it. Uh, We also know that the current financial crisis had uh, very little to do with government intervention in the U.S. economy uh, on on a macro scale 
uh, with, uh, with money and banking or on a micro scale with uh, uh, mortgage lending uh, policies. Uh, the government gave capitalism uh, try after try after try, and then finally uh, uh, the inherent contradictions of capitalism kicked in, and they had to pass very recently the Emergency Economic Stabilization Act of 2008. I'm being a little facetious here, but once again, capitalism has gotten the blame. Uh, you look at major perceived capitalist failings, uh, and there might be more than what I have here. I have five of them. Interpretation of the Industrial Revolution. Everyone knows that life was great until the Industrial Revolution came along. Uh, the robber barons, uh, the monopolists that uh, uh, made things worse, not better for consumers. Uh, the Great Depression. Uh, uh, capitalism, the inherent uh, contradictions of capitalism, Enron bankruptcy, the mainstream interpretation is that this was a, uh, a tragedy for capitalism. And as Paul Krugman wrote in the New York Times, he said that, uh, the en that Enron, not 9-11, uh, would be uh, the tragedy that we'll remember in uh, future decades. And uh, finally, the current financial crisis of 2008. Now, the idea that uh, uh, Enron was a blame of capitalism was uh, pretty much a mainstream view. Uh, it's Exhibit A. Enron is Exhibit A of the great majority of business ethics professors in our business schools on uh, why uh, capitalism has to be closely regulated, closely monitored, and in addition to that, that there needs to be classroom coaching for everyone in business so that they have a conscience and they're not amoral uh, practitioners under capitalism. And there's a quote here from Robert Kuttner in Business Week that's uh, worth reading uh, that says so much. Uh, Kuttner said, quote, uh, right after the Enron collapse, for, for three decades now the dominant strain of economics from the University of Chicago has been teaching gullible undergraduates and journalists that there is no such thing as a public interest. Efficient outcomes are just the aggregation of selfish private interest and government's main job is to get out of the way. Well, after Enron, these theorists should learn some other useful trade. Uh, Dr. Niskanen, where did you get your PhD? Uh, no other questions, Your Honor. <laughs> Whoops, let me go this way. And uh, a review of three Enron books uh, by the New York Times financial uh, editorialist Floyd Norris. Notice his title, Business Ethics and Other uh, Oxymorons. Now, within the free market community, uh, there's been uh, uh, an interpretation, and certainly a correct interpretation, uh, but it's an interpretation I want to bring uh, a step further uh, in, in my talk here this morning, and, and it's what I try to do in the book. The standard interpretation is that uh, the market exacted its revenge for bad entrepreneurship, uh, bad business behavior, and, and even illegal uh, business behavior with the prosecutions. Enron is a story of a company that was good at certain things. It had a core. It expanded outside of its core in all sorts of areas, and the uh, non-core gobbled up the core, and there was a little bit of bad luck in all this. Uh, Enron's collapse just coming several months after uh, 
um, uh, 9-11. Uh, the, uh, there's been many books um, uh, on the Enron collapse, and certainly two of the very best were uh, edited uh, by uh, Bill Niskanen and published by Cato. Uh, looking closely at Enron's business model, uh, what they did right, what they did wrong, and why uh, it was uh, entirely logical that uh, Enron collapsed. And really the question is, why, uh, uh, why didn't it uh, collapse uh, sooner? And with the, within the broad libertarian free market movement, sort of the verdict, uh, uh, such as this article by Joe Bass, uh, the head of the Heartland Institute, was Enron proves capitalism works. Companies go bankrupt. Adam Smith in his early days said, uh, bankruptcy, not much more than one in a thousand. And looking at the statistics of the most uh, uh, available, five, five, most recent five years, the bankruptcy rate in the United States ending in 2006 was about 1.2 per thousand. So uh, Adam Smith uh, was pretty close. Uh, but there's something unique about uh, Enron that uh, it, it was more, really more than just a failure of a company. You could almost call it, or certainly the mainstream and left looked at it, as uh, a market failure. And George, the wise George Will called it a systemic failure. He said Enron is a systemic failure implicating the range of institutions from accounting firms to board of directors that are designed to justify broad public confidence in the functioning of what is supposed to be a mature capitalist system, a confidence that is increasingly indispensable given the rapidly broadening demographics of stock ownership. And you look at all the institutions that were corrupted uh, by uh, Enron, and when I say Enron, it can almost go back to the one person, the founder, the architect of the company, uh, Ken Lay. Um, uh, but uh, uh, the Enron story is so unique, and this is why there's still books uh, coming out. But a lot of this gets back to, like I say, uh, Ken Lay. Here's a picture of Ken uh, growing up in uh, rural um, uh, Missouri, all the way to his meeting with the Vice President of the United States, Bill Cheney, where uh, Lay was lobbying for two things. One, a federal uh, uh, open access law for electricity uh, um, to open up the wholesale market, and two, to price carbon dioxide uh, CO2. Now, notice that uh, I describe uh, Ken Lay as a master political capitalist. Uh, well, what is political capitalism as versus free market capitalism? Now, I would go back to the definition of the new left historian Gabriel Coco, a definition that is serviceable for uh, free marketeers and not Marxist socialist-oriented uh, historians. And uh, Coco's definition back in the 60s, political capitalism is, quote, the utilization of political outlets to attain conditions of stability, predictability, and security to allow corporations reasonable profits over the long run. Lots of terms for political capitalism. Uh, here's the ones that I have been able to find, but basically what it's all about is uh, business interest either pushing for legislation or shaping legislation that's already been passed in a direction where a firm or group of firms are getting a special government favor through regulation, subsidies, or a special tax provision. 
Dr. Ken Lay, uh, if I can quote from my book, you know, who was uh, Ken Lay? The architect and chairman of Enron from its formation in the mid-80s until its bankruptcy. The once celebrated visionary of the energy industry was not an engineer, as were many leaders in the energy sector. Lay did not possess an accounting or finance background, as did some senior executives. He never clawed his way up the corporate ladder in various operational divisions, much less built a company from scratch. No, Enron's leader was a Ph.D. economist interested in the big picture and the ways of political power. His resume was top-heavy with Washington experience, acquired at three federal jobs, the last two regulating the energy industry. Ken Lay's interest and skill set dovetailed with the political capitalist system he found when he became a Washington energy regulator in the early 70s. Predictably then, when Lay re-entered the private sector after nearly six years of government service, his niche became running federally regulated interstate natural gas pipelines, assets that he knew well from his time at the Federal Power Commission, now the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. And when Lay got his own show as chairman and CEO of a Fortune 500 company, he lost little time in applying his academic training, considerable smarts, uncommon energy, keen ambition, and soulful persona to the government opportunity, government favor game. He was an extraordinary mile-a-minute political capitalist, or rent-seeker in the jargon of economics, eager to deploy the political means to propel Enron to the top of the energy industry and then the whole business world. Uh, Ken Lay's business model. Uh, let me go back here. Um, regulatory change, create regulatory change, which creates new competitive space, be the first mover in that new competitive space, and hire the best and the brightest to make those first mover profits. That was the revolutionary business model of Ken Lay. A big part of this, you all heard that Enron was an asset light uh, company. This revolved around working within mandatory open access for natural gas and electricity. Uh, they inherited uh, open access with natural gas pipelines and led the way by uh, uh, introducing commodity marketing, uh, the natural gas commodity in the newly open uh, wholesale gas markets. Uh, they pushed very hard for electricity open access, got it on the federal level, and were getting it in some states at the time the company collapsed. Broadband services, this was what was needed so badly, but which they, uh, Enron could not get. I remember one of my last jobs at the company was calling the think tanks around Washington, D.C., trying to drum up interest in uh, introducing, having a federal law, mandatory open access, to solve the last mile problem with broadband. And I don't think I ever called Cato on it, but I talked to Tom uh, Hazlett over at the American Enterprise Institute, and it was something like, Tom, I know there's no intellectual case, but I'm supposed to call you about. And so it didn't get very far. But this is a regulatory model. Uh, this is all about uh, infrastructure socialism, as Wayne Cruz would put it. Uh, this has everything to do with regulation, uh, creating contrived markets. 
The second thing that was so important to Ken Lay's strategy was a green energy strategy. Uh, tax breaks and quota for wind power and solar power, and Enron rescued the United States wind power industry in the 1990s when we bought uh, Zond uh, Wind Company. Uh, Kinetec, the other major wind company, had gone bankrupt, and it was uh, Enron's lobbying, and I can name you the two lobbyists, but I won't, that uh, got George W. Bush, Governor Bush, to sign a renewable quota for Texas, and that renewable quota has made Texas the leading wind power uh, center in the United States, uh, if not the world. Um, uh, and uh, Enron was pushed hard for 13 years for the federal government to price carbon dioxide, CO2. We had no less than seven, count them seven, profit centers that would benefit uh, from this. Uh, Enron was active around the, uh, the world, developing infrastructure in developing countries. Uh, virtually all those projects had government-guaranteed financing behind them. There was one area where uh, Enron uh, had very regulated assets where they took a free market position toward rate and entry uh, uh, liberalization or even deregulation. That was with natural gas pipelines, and that's where I spent a good deal of my time. But there's not too much else uh, other than all this. Uh, there's a Xerox, uh, but that wasn't really a straight regulatory play. That was a bit of a privatization play, which would put uh, Enron on the, on the right side of some issues. But virtually all of Enron's profit centers had to do with uh, regulatory change, and the majority it was toward more intervention and not less. Uh, Enron, a uh, uh, big initiative, um, uh, and Enron had a mini-vision to become the world's leading renewable energy company. Uh, was Ken Lay uh, reading Jerry Taylor? I'm afraid he wasn't. You know, Jerry was putting out a lot of pieces during this period, but the one thing that Ken Lay was reading, and you see desk, he, uh, he actually would keep this in his desk, was a paper by Chris Flavin at the World Watch Institute, Climate Alarmism, The Future of Energy is uh, Wind and Solar. And in a lighter moment, uh, Lay uh, quoted something that I've always found very interesting, quote, if, the, if there's one thing I have been impressed with over the last decades, it is that when the environmental community defines a number one priority, something happens. Not always something good, but something. And uh, this is a book uh, that might come out, um, uh, the Obama Energy Plan. And the Obama Energy Plan, if he hangs on to win the presidency, the company that is most important in this debate, it's not ExxonMobil or Chevron, uh, any oil and gas company, it's Enron, because virtually all the parts the uh, wind and solar uh, subsidies, the energy efficiency mandates, the climate alarmism, pricing CO2, is identical to what uh, Enron was pushing uh, beginning in the late 1980s until uh, its bankruptcy. There's another part of Enron's political capitalism model that's very, very important. Uh, Enron inherited a very political accounting system and tax system, and we hired a lot of people who were real masters at gaming both. Gaming regulatory structures uh, is uh, a major part of uh, political capitalism, and it was part of the Enron asset light uh, strategy. 
um, there was uh, so much that Enron did with accounting that was actually legal, as uh, uh, as uh, uh, perverted and convoluted as it was. Uh, and there's lots of stories there that uh, uh, I, I won't get into. But on the tax side, and the Washington Post actually broke this story, the, the, uh, the corporate tax division looked at themselves as a profit center. And you uh, might ask yourself, well, what in the world? But what would happen is at the end of the quarter, Enron needed a certain amount of money to make its numbers. They would uh, tell the tax people, find us $200,000. So the tax people would work with the most creative lawyers and accountants uh, across the country or internally, and they'd come up with something, and maybe they would spend uh, $200,000 to say $400,000. Lease back, buybacks with the building, incredibly convoluted. But there was a lot of gaming with the tax system, and this is all part of this political animal that we know today uh, as Enron. Uh, and this brings up the public policy question uh, in very regulated structures, does it really protect you? Uh, I have Enron's last annual report. It's actually about 60 pages. I have the annual report of a predecessor company of Enron, Houston Natural Gas, from the uh, early 1930s. And it was Houston Natural Gas that Ken Lay became CEO of that later became Enron. And this annual report from the early 30s, it's three pages, and there's not even an external opinion on it. Now, why did this seem to protect investors in the early day, but yet the 60-pager didn't? Certainly, the Enron of 2001 was a much more complicated and bigger company than the old Houston Natural Gas. But in the old days, if there's a bad number on here and it uh, leads to material damage, you tell it to the judge and jury. Under a very regulated approach, it actually has the unintended consequence of creating a safe harbor where your intent can be bad, but you're still working within the law. Now, that's changed a little bit uh, because intent uh, now matters a lot more. Um, but it gets back to the uh, political economy insider maxim of the, that we need simple rules for a complex world, the idea of, uh, of Richard Epstein here. Um, so in summary of this point, uh, rather than say Enron proves capitalism works, which uh, only goes so far, I'd like to say that Enron discredits the mixed economy. I would like to make the point that outside of the mixed economy of political capitalism, Kinlay and Enron would be unknown to history. And this brings the question of why uh, the worst get on top. Um, and that's one of the inspirations of capitalism at work is to, uh, sh to show that there's a moral and there's a natural order within free market capitalism that really prevents the Enrons and the Kinlays from getting on top. Uh, the, my book, broadly considered, is uh, about organizational success versus failure. Um, and what I mean by that is uh, rather than going through the boom and bust waste where you go through the whole cycle and you don't have much to show for all those years of effort, we need to have as an ideal sustainable progress. Uh, it's never a straight line uh, because of creative destruction. 
and there is uh, speculative uh, uh, bubbles that can occur, but overall, there's sustainable growth. And I think a very key book that ha is sort of the opposite of the Enron Ken Lay model is The Science of Success by Charles Koch. Uh, there's some other books, though, in the capitalist tradition, going way back to Adam Smith um, uh, in 1759, his theory of moral sentiments, and continuing with a wonderful classic that I didn't know about, you know, five years ago. I, uh, I found, found out about uh, um, uh, self-help by Samuel Smiles almost by accident, but this book published in 1859 uh, which was intended for people just entering the workforce uh, during the Industrial Revolution, it has all these tips on good behavior versus bad behavior, sustainable behavior versus unsustainable behavior. And a lot of these tips uh, you can apply um, uh, against what was happening at Enron. You know, if, if uh, Fastow lay uh, in skilling and really learn the lessons of uh, both, both from the theory of moral sentiments and self-help, uh, that they could have avoided some of their errors. But again, the major point is that the incentive systems uh, that, get, that allowed the worst to get on top, that allowed uh, Ken Lay to get to the very top of the business world without the requisite skills that uh, you normally would expect uh, from a CEO of a large corporation. Uh, that is a perversion of the mixed economy. The question on a, um, that we hear today with the financial crisis, uh, and Tyler Cowen uh, on his blog, Marginal Revolution, has made the point that the current crisis represents a massive conjunction of both market and government failure. Um, and I'm going to differ a little bit from Tyler on this, um, even though Tyler is a lot smarter than I am, as shown by this graph. You can laugh if, if you'd like. Uh, but too much, I think we're, it's, uh, it's an error in our thinking as we think of market failure and government failure as two different things. And I'll suggest that in the mixed economy, where you have a set of businessmen on top, not only of Enron, but of leading financial institutions that have grown up in a mixed economy, that this is, these are a weak set of entrepreneurs in what you would get in a consumer-driven economic means economy. So actually, government failure is polluting or encompasses part of what we now think of market failure. So my offered hypothesis is that bad business practices behind Enron and now Wall Street can be traced back to the mixed economy where the worst in business can get on top. Capitalists behaving badly is an unintended consequence of government intervention in the economy. In other words, more than just entrepreneurial error is at work in the mixed economy. There's so few uh, real capitalists. Uh, Lee Raymond, retired from ExxonMobil, was a was a real capitalist. He was always getting hounded. Why isn't why ExxonMobil investing in renewables? And his answer was, well, we tried uh, wind and solar and renewables in the 70s, and it didn't work. And they know from their internal computations why renewables are inherently inferior to the fossil fuel family. And he said, you know, I could spend $50, 60000000 million and, and do it, but I don't think that's what shareholders 
really want me to do. I don't think that's in their best interest, so I'm not going to do it. Uh, John, uh, John Allison uh, in the financial community and, and Charles Koch. But instead we have uh, another group of political, uh, cap, the political capitalists, uh, T. Boone Pickens and Aud- Audrey uh, McClendon pushing the Pickens plan, all about government subsidies for wind power in the electric sec- sector and compressed natural gas in the transporta- uh, transportation sector. And uh, Jim Rogers here, the uh, head of Duke, uh, he was my old big boss, my boss's boss. He was at Enron for a number of years, and he was a real Ken Lay protege. And when he left Enron to take over uh, the company that is now, uh, through mergers, Duke, uh, he got way out in front on the climate change issue. He worked with the environmentalists and came out for a cap-and-trade where no other electric utility sector chairman would. They said it was hard pairing him up for uh, golf events at the trade association meetings. All the other CEOs were so mad at him. But um, Rogers took that model. Let's get out in front. We know what's coming. Uh, but Rogers, with his cap and, uh, with, with his, uh, cap and trade proposal, uh, he went so far, the environmentalists went in another direction, and he has been left holding the bag, and now he favors a tax rather than cap and trade. The perils of the mixed economy. But uh, when you hear of Jim Rogers and Duke in the upcoming uh, debates, remember that he is sort of following the Ken Lay strategy. So I guess my book is a, uh, to, to wrap it up, is a primer on capitalism as it should be, not as it has been. Certainly American capitalism is something very different from political capitalism. And my book is a worldview book. Uh, it's about Enron, but Enron is just the example, the touchstone. It's really a primer on best business practices within free market capitalism from a a philosophic, historical, uh, economic, and energy public policy perspective. So with that, I'll conclude. Thank you. Thank you, Rob. Um, there really was a tremendous amount of, of tension between Rob's uh, academic work for the Cato Institute and Rob's policy work for Enron, <clears throat> which uh, uh, was, was put in, in great uh, uh, highlight for me. When about 10 years ago, I was at a meeting sponsored by the American Legislative Exchange Council in Atlanta. And for those of you familiar, uh, not familiar with the American Legislative Exchange Council, it's a coalition membership, an individual membership organization of state legislators. Uh, probably about a third of all the state legislators in America are members of ALEC. And it's a place where uh, uh, market-oriented le- state legislators could get together with uh, corporate members of ALEC to uh, hash out public policy and ideas to bring to their state legislature. Uh, but uh, in between uh, those uh, state legislators and those corporate contributors of ALEC uh, were uh, uh, outside scholars who were invited in on a case-by-case basis to try to uh, better inform the conversation. I was invited in uh, as an outsider uh, with the Cato Institute and also because I worked at ALEC before coming to the Cato Institute to uh, discuss what ALEC's public policy ought to be on natural gas pipelines. And uh, before the uh, Energy Task Force uh, in Atlanta was a proposition to endorse some mandatory open access rules for uh, local gas pipelines, 
and uh, I was there to thunder against this idea. So I came, even though I didn't know a great deal about the gas pipeline dispute, I did have access to volumes one and two of Rob Bradley's Oil, Gas, and Government, and found wonderful arguments and uh, data therein to, uh, uh, to, to do battle with this idea. And at the meeting, lo and behold, who was the main proponent of mandatory open access for natural gas pipelines but the aforementioned Rob Bradley? And so I was quoting Rob's book back at him in the course of his lobbying in front of these state legislators and at the meeting. And afterwards, Rob came up to me and said, you know, of course I don't take back what I wrote, but give me a break. I mean, come on. I'm here to carry Enron's argument. So uh, that was uh, – it, it, it certainly uh, puts, uh, uh, puts in perspective the kind of tension that Rob had to uh, deal with uh, carrying both the, uh, the moniker of uh, free market energy analyst and also the moniker of Enron uh, corporate uh, executive. <clears throat> Our next speaker to talk about uh, Enron and this book uh, is William Niskanen and uh, – as I mentioned, I've been here for 17 years, and when I'm asked what do I like about the Cato Institute that's compelled me to stay here for as long as I have, uh, the, the answer I usually give is the people I work with, and there can be no better person to work with than Bill Niskanen. Uh, for most of my time here in Cato, uh, his office has been adjacent to mine, uh, and uh, Bill has an open-door policy, and he is more than welcome to talk about public policy with you, no matter how rat-ignorant you might be about economics. And uh, given Bill's training, virtually everyone qualifies for that moniker. But still, Bill is happy to chat with us. I've learned a tremendous amount from Bill uh, about public policy, about economics, uh, and about uh, uh, what it is to be a productive member of the policy community. Uh, Bill is uh, Chairman Emeritus of Cato and a distinguished senior economist here. Between 1985 and 2008, Bill was Chairman of the Cato Institute, following service as a member and acting Chairman of, the Pres of President Reagan's Council of Economic Advisors. Uh, Niskanen has served as Director of Economics at Ford Motor Company, Professor of Economics at the University of California, Berkeley, and Los Angeles, Assistant Director of the Federal Office of Management and Budget, a Defense Analyst at the RAND Corporation, and Director of Special Studies in the Office of the Secretary of Defense, and Director of the Pro of Program Analysis uh, Division at the Institute for Defense Analysis. Uh, Bill, uh, it, because of all those defense monikers, it wouldn't surprise you to discover that uh, Bill, uh, in his early days, was one of the uh, uh, much ballyhooed whiz kids uh, in the Department of Defense during the uh, Vietnam War. Uh, he has written on many public policy issues, including corporate governance, defense, federal budget policy, regulation, social security, taxes, and trade. The scan is 1971 book, Bureaucracy and Representative Government, is considered a classic in the field. His more recent books include Reaganomics, an insider's account of the policies of the people, which uh, many believe, and I agree, is probably the best single volume about the Reagan administration and its public policy that uh, is available to outsiders. He's also the author of Bureaucracy and Public Economics in 1996, Policy Analysis and Public Choice in 2004, Autocratic, Democratic, and Optimal Government, Fiscal Choices and Economic Outcomes from 2004, and Reflections of a Political Economist from 2008. His two most recent books uh, relevant for today's discussion, however, uh, were highlighted by Rob. They include Corporate Aftershock, The Public Policy Lessons from the Collapse of Enron and Other Major Corporations, which he co-edited in 2003, and After Enron, The Major Lessons for Public Policy, which he edited in 2005. 
Uh, Bill holds a B.A. from Harvard and, uh, as noted, a Ph.D. in economics from the University of Chicago. The University of Chicago recently honored him with a Lifetime Professional Service Award. Please join me in welcoming Bill Niskanen. Rob has addressed an important issue in this discussion, uh, and he's also written a very valuable book. There doesn't seem to be much of any relation, however, between the discussion we've had and his book. The book is a, uh, is a valuable collection of the intellectual contributions over the past several hundred years that shaped the public policy and economic, uh, public and political economic policy debate in the United States today. And that is a valuable, that is a valuable uh, source of, of information. I must acknowledge that one of these people, however, about which I've never heard anything is a man named Smiles. Uh, the, the rest of them are, are names that you will recognize. And I think that the, uh, the, the book is valuable in that sense, is that if you want to find out what, uh, what, what the leading contributors to the intellectual debate on political and economic matters have been over the past several hundred years, including their modern con uh, contemporary uh, representatives. Uh, this is a valuable source of it. I don't think, however, that it has much to do with the discussion we've had this morning. This book, by the way, is, is the first book in a, in a three-book, uh, in what will be a three-book trilogy. And it's not until he gets to the third book that he ha really has a, a description of why uh, Enron failed and, and what the lessons are to be learned from that. Now, I think that the political economic model uh, that he talks about is an important uh, problem of the American, um, the American political system, but it doesn't have much to do with, uh, with why Enron specifically failed as distinct from any number of other firms. In, in the year that Enron failed, in December of 2001, there were half a dozen other firms failed in, uh, at about the same period of time, most importantly, WorldCom in the summer of 2002. And uh, the, the group of firms that failed at that time were not, were not, uh, did not have common characteristics in the sense that the, uh, they were not necessarily um, ones that had, had, had been particularly interested in uh, the political economic uh, model. Um, and so it was not it, the political economic model is was a, I think a part of the explanation of why Enron failed, but in fact they lost most of their money in traditional uh, utility investments in most cases in other countries. Uh, it was not a uh, it was not a situation in which their actions in the United States were the were the source of their their the primary source of their losses. They lost most money on, on uh, in Rebecca Marks' uh, uh, area of responsibility, which was building big utilities in Brazil and uh, and uh, and uh, and uh, in India and in the United Kingdom and so forth. Uh, that was not a matter of uh, the kind of that was not a consequence of the politics in the United States. Although any time you build a big utility, you have to deal with the, the local officials. The Enron failure also, I think, is not very much of a predictor of, uh, of uh, what firms are failing now in uh, 2008. Uh, and I think that there were very few lessons that anybody has learned from the, from the, 
from the Enron failure and the period and that period of time that somehow help explain what has happened or what has not happened in 2008. Also, it's important to recognize that uh, in, uh, in the Enron failure period, there were only about seven firms, seven big firms that failed during that period of time with relatively little effect on the general economy. Only one of them a, a financial firm. The other ones were um, industrial firms and utilities and so forth. And, um, but I think that we've learned very few lessons from that period of time that either explain what has happened since that time or what, what ought to have been done. Let me read you some quotes from a, an article in the Wall Street Journal just two days ago about this issue. The headline is, Post-Enron Crackdown Comes Up Woefully Short. And I'll just read you some excerpts from this. First, the lesson of Enron is, sadly, that there are no lessons. Today's financial crisis has shown what a real debacle looks like. And it has made clear that executives' duties to public companies have, if anything, been loosened, not reinforced. What is worse, the post-Enron crackdown appears not only to have failed to stop flagrant corporate risk-taking, but to have lulled Washington to sleep. An example, Lehman Brothers' chief executive, Richard Full, deserves plenty of responsibility for the fate of his 158-year-old firm. He passed on a number of decent chances to sell Lehman Brothers before it tipped into bankruptcy, and he pushed the firm into real estate as the boom was reaching its climatic end. Uh, in the last few, uh, 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 last hours before the Enron collapse, Lehman Brothers told investigators that the firm's financial position was strong, even as they debated raising uh, fresh capital to absorb losses. In the meantime, uh, what happened in Washington? If anything, Mr. Fold's optimism nearly mirrors a similar attitude in Congress in the preceding five years. The House Financial Services Committee held 56 hearings in 2006. This is the year in which the housing market peaked. On everything from flood insurance to transparency and financial reporting, none touched directly on the issues that have brought the U.S. and world economies to their knees. Securities and Exchange Commission uh, Christopher Cox came before that committee in September 2006, just as the credit bubble was reaching its peak. In a session celebrating signature, uh, legis uh, signature legislation of the post-Enron era, the Sarbanes-Oxley Act, Mr. Cox mused, we have come a long way since 2002. Investor confidence has recovered. There is greater corporate accountability. Financial reporting is more reliable and transparent. Now, basically, everybody involved in this uh, current crisis has proved to be uh, ha has proved to have said something quite uh, quite different, quite uh, inconsistent with what has in fact happened since that period of time. We have a, a massive financial crisis now that is correctly described as a as a con conse consequence of a combination of major mistakes within the financial community itself, primarily in Wall Street. And a, and a series of measures here in Washington that, one, invited, um, invited abuse of financial opportunities uh, and then uh, triggered, triggered the financial collapse uh, starting, um, starting rather late. In July, I finished a chapter in, uh, in a book which Cato publishes every once in a while, the Cato Handbook for Con Congress on Financial Regulation. 
And I came back from Italy after a short vacation in early September, and I decided I have to write that chapter completely over because uh, all kinds of things have happened in the meantime, which, uh, which meant that what I wrote in July was completely out of date. Although I, did, I was in a position to document that a number of the problems that led to the current crisis originated here in Washington, and it was only compounded by really very bad decisions by a number of big financial firms. Now, um, the, 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 what we have to look for is whether there is any, um, whether there's any uh, model of behavior um, that, uh, by American business that is likely to lead to commercial success or commercial failure and uh, I think whether there's any model of uh, behavior here in Washington that is likely to prevent uh, those conditions from repeating. And I suggest we really don't have very good models of either case. On the question of, uh, of um, whether models of behavior by individual firms are helpful, uh, uh, are helpful, it is important to recognize a couple of things. The... Um, Microsoft never had an office here in Washington. Microsoft, really the leading industrial firm, never had an office here in Washington until the antitrust division went against it uh, on an antitrust case, in which case they had to build up a Washington office and, and start dealing with Congress and uh, have, have, have people ready to answer all kinds of questions here in Washington. Um, Walmart... The, the world's leading private employer uh, never had an office here until a year or two ago, and, and it's, uh, but they basically do no lobbying. They do a lot of lobbying at the level of state and local governments because they have to get permission to build their stores in these places. Uh, but they have never had any significant lobbying here in, here in Washington, and even now, although they do have a small office downtown now. So those are encouraging signs, is that, is that uh, companies that have done very well have done very well without political connections. Um, and, but once the, country, once the company gets into trouble, it is very likely to, to try to develop uh, political connections. In the late 1970s, I was the chief economist for Ford Motor Company. Uh, at, in the middle of the 1970s, the, uh, the, uh, there was no Ford representation here in Washington, and there was no representation here in Washington uh, by the American Automobile Association. And that developed only with an act called the, uh, uh, the Fuel Economy Standards Act, the act that let, gave us fuel economy standards. The debate over that act led uh, the Auto American Automobile Association to develop a, a, a substantial Washington representation. And, uh, and at the time, the big three did not have any re representation here, but they moved here starting in the late 1970s after they got into trouble competing with the, with the, um, with the Japanese. And that uh, the thought that the government might... Uh, protect them against the Japanese for a period of time, as it turned out that they did, even under the Reagan administration. So I, I, I worry about this model of a sort of political capitalism is either, is either an explanation for, for firms that fail, 
A lot of firms have succeeded all too well with support from the government. But it's not a very good explanation of firms that fail because a lot of firms have failed without much of a role here in, in Washington or in, or in the politics. And I worry about Enron as an, ex as, as an example of, of uh, what's, happening, what's going to happen in the future or what's happening in 2008. Uh, Enron, clearly the fa failure of Enron clearly led to Sarbanes-Oxley, which is very bad legislation. But if Enron had failed one year later, there would have been no Sarbanes-Oxley Act because by that time the Republicans had recaptured the Senate in 2003, and I think there would have been no, there would have been no Sarbanes-Oxley Act in that case. If Enron, uh, if Enron had, Enron's failure had not been followed by the WorldCom failure, I think there would have been no Sarbanes-Oxley Act. So it was a combination of a number of things, that just the particular timing of Enron's failure and the fact that it was associated with the failure of a much larger firm, WorldCom. Very few people have written very much about WorldCom, but it failed, I think, in June or July of 2002. And in July, late July, we got the Sarbanes-Oxley Act. So um, the Enron failure, I think, was, was, uh, was kind of an accident, in part because of the timing of its failure and the timing, of, and the timing uh, combined with the failure of uh, WorldCom, a much bigger firm at the same time. The one thing that we can learn from both the Enron episodes and the current uh, problems in, in Wall Street and the financial community is that there are a lot of people around this town and around this country and maybe around the world who have a model of what the government ought to be doing, who use that who used the occasion of a crisis in the in the business community as as a crisis, as an occasion for making their case there are lots of people who who want to take uh, much have much the have the government take much more uh, extensive and severe controls over our economy than is now the case and they used an occasion for something like the Enron failure or what's happening on Wall Street as the occasion for promoting uh, really very much more substantial legislation in controlling the economy. That's what happened in the Enron case that led to the Sarbanes-Oxley Act. Uh, really the most important um, federal law on corporate governance that we've ever had. We've had lots of state laws on corporate governance. We've never had a, a, a serious a, a federal law on corporate governance until Sarbanes-Oxley came along. Right now, the problems on Wall Street uh, are, have, have led to a massive delegation of authority without any further guidance to the Treasury of the Department, uh, Department of the Treasury. The Congress gave the Treasury the authority to spend up to $700 billion, basically with no subsequent guidance, with no guidance in the law, and with no and, and with no subsequent guidance, the consequence of which is that Secretary Paulson and his colleagues have tried two or three uh, things uh, to do uh, with this money, uh, uh, which are inconsistent with what they talked about when they when this law was passed, uh, and and there doesn't seem to be any end in sight. Um, they started talking about uh, buying bad mortgage paper from the major banks. And then they said, well, maybe we'll have to buy some 
mortgage paper from some foreign banks, bad American mortgage paper. Maybe we'll have to buy it from a larger community of banks. They've committed something like $125 billion to the major banks, but now they're talking about trying to get the larger community of banks in both regional banks and, and, um, and community banks to participate in having, in, in, in having the, them sell... Um, having them sell uh, their um, either sell their their bad uh, mortgages to um, the, the feds or or more specifically what the feds have asked for now is that the feds will buy preferred stock from these uh, from these banks uh, so there'll be partial nationalization of a very large portion of the of the of the federal uh, of the American financial community none of this was talked about at the time the bill passed it is it was not in the bill itself it is it is one of the four episodes in the past uh, 20 years or so in which congress has uh, wanted to go home for either summer recess or for the run for election the president has asked for almost almost unlimited authority uh and um and and got away with it the first of these episodes was the um Gulf of Tonkin resolution in August of, two th- uh, August of uh, 1967. Um, 60, right, 60, right, 64, 64. Uh, there, it turns out that the, what he claimed was the basis for the Gulf of Tonkin resolution was, was false intelligence. This claim that there was an attack on American destroyer in the Gulf of Tonkin. He, to, he told that story on a Sunday night, uh, and he had already ordered bombing of, of North Vietnam at the time. Uh, and he asked for basically unlimited authority to decide how much and, and whether and when and how much we will go to war with, uh, with, with, uh, with Vietnam at the time. Congress passed that bill a, a couple of days later uh, with only two dissenting votes in the Senate, only two. And it turns out that both of those dissenters were defeated in the next election. So it was widely supported, uh, but based upon basically no, uh, no, 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 no consistent intelligence. The second of these episodes was the August 15th announcement by the President Nixon that he was going to impose comprehensive wage and price controls on the economy. Um, and a 10% uniform across the board 10% tariff. Um, I was an assistant director of OMB at the time and was asked to prepare a list of budget cuts that he might offer that same night. But I was not told about what else was in that package. When I, when I heard what else was in that package, I decided to, uh, to go back to academic work. Um, the third of those episodes was the, um, was the October... Uh, 2002 uh, Iraq War Resolution. Again, this was at a time when Congress was dying to go home to run for re-election. Congress, uh, the president asked for authority basically to, to decide whether and when and how much we should go to war with Iraq. And he, and he got that authority, basically unlimited authority uh, from Congress uh, because the president insisted that this was a must-pass bill. You've got to do it. Uh, and you have to give me full authority. Now, 15 months later, 16 months later, the president finally exercised that authority in March of 2003 to go to war. Uh, 
Now, one of my attempts to head off something like this was in December of uh, 2001. This was 14 months before we went to war. Uh, I was engaged in a televised debate here in this room with James Woolsey, the former head of the CIA, on whether to go to war with Iraq. And this was probably the first televised statement against why we should not go to war uh, with Iraq at the time. I was not successful in that case, as I've not been successful in prior situations. But in fact, uh, I was trying to head off this sort of thing uh, at that time, uh, you know, right after, right after the, uh, we went to war in, in, in Afghanistan, which I did not oppose. And the final one, of course, is this current one, in which the president asked for basically unlimited authority to spend up to $700 billion uh, without, without guidance about uh, how he should spend it and, and what he can do with the money, and then has changed his mind, or Paulson has changed his mind a number of times since that time. So what we have to watch out for is we've got to recognize, and you'll recognize from Rob's book, that there are a lot of people around who've been spending a good bit of their intellectual life trying to figure out how to make a case for substantially expanded government role in the economy and in our life. And they use occasions of failures in the private sector, like the failure of Enron and like the problems on Wall Street this summer and fall, uh, as an occasion for making a case for a much bigger, much more expanded federal role in our economy and in our life. And unfortunately, they have been too successful in this already and uh, with many more, many more situations to come. This is not the end of capitalism, but I think it is the end of an era in which, we are, in which it will be much more difficult to make the case for free market capitalism uh, in the next uh, several decades than it has been in the past several decades. Thank you. Thank you, Bill. When I mentioned in my initial remarks, in, in my introductory remarks, that uh, Bill uh, helps to uh, teach staffers what it means to be an effective policy analyst in Washington, you can see uh, what it is that we learn. We learn the merits of straight talk, intellectual honesty, and recognition of the fact that we're going to lose pretty much every political fight we engage ourselves in. With the odd, with the odd uh, observation that we can lose virtually every battle and still somehow manage to win the long-term wars, though exactly how that works, I'm not entirely sure, but it seems to follow. Anyway, Rob, uh, before we turn over to questions and answers, uh, I want you to wrestle with, uh, with Bill's observation that uh, – Enron doesn't necessarily teach us anything. It holds no lessons for public policy, and your book's not about that anyway. So, Okay. Um, my talk today is focused on the introduction to the book and the epilogue. Um, and you'll find uh, my case is, uh, is uh, spelled out in more detail there. But Bill is right. Uh, book two is, uh, among other things, is going to look at the career of Ken Lay before he became CEO, so you get a good idea of, of him individually. And book three will be a, uh, a history of Enron and the Harvard Business School tradition, where you're looking at the company from quarter to quarter, year to year, each division, where you really get a sense that you're there at the time making those decisions. And that type book hasn't been written yet. Uh, uh, Bill's comments were great. 
Um, but let me try to elaborate on my point, which is subtle, with the political capitalism model. I think what Enron proves is the political capitalism model um, adds a lot of cost on the corporate side. You have to have a very big government affairs department. You have to have a very big PR department. Our PR department was getting out memos every time any small thing happened with the wind company, uh, for example. Um, the other thing is that Ken Lay tried to create the leading energy company in the world based on the political capitalism model, and through open access, he got to a certain level. I think at one time our capitalization, but it came from a lot of non-energy things, was over, uh, uh, put us number five among the energy majors. And Lay was trying to create the world's leading company off the political capitalism model, and he certainly failed there. If you look at the individual profit centers that were direct, directly dependent on a special government favor, a number of them were money losers, but some of them were big money uh, winners. But if you also look at, uh, look at the political capitalism model as giving us the accounting and the tax system, I think that explains why Enron was able to fool the world and Enron didn't go bankrupt a lot sooner. So political capitalism enabled uh, Enron. It, the, and I get back to this point, the worst got on top. I, I do not think that you in this room would know the name Ken Lay, and maybe the name Enron would have never been a business uh, company name if it wasn't for the political capitalism system. That enabled the worst to get on top. Uh, taking that point a step further, if we had a Lee Raymond or a Charles Koch or a John Allison as the head of AIG or Lehman Brothers, would the same thing have happened? I suggest maybe not. And so what we're seeing here with market failure and government failure is that the, the mixed economy is giving us a crop of business leaders that are incompetent. Maybe they never should have gotten there, or maybe they were great and they just fall into bad habits. And I do think there is a model for organizational success, and part of it is to uh, reject the political means in favor of the economic means, and that's Charles Koch's The Science of Success. And his book is thin. Um, it's very brief, um, but my book tries to uh, expand the themes a little more, and there's going to be a lot more writing on this itself. But I think it's extremely promising, uh, and it could be a renaissance of business even within the mixed economy. But we need uh, a reform from the ground up from business people, reading things like Samuel Smile, self-help, and we need a free market economy rather than the mixed economy to allow the best to get on top. Uh, I, I agree with Rob's comment here, but I must acknowledge that... Uh, Charles Koch was the founding sponsor of the Cato Institute and is still uh, a member of our board as, and uh, still a major, uh, major donor to the Cato. So we're very indebted to him. But to be clear, we don't follow any of his management advice as far as I can tell. Uh, but that's a whole different story. Um, maybe when Volume 3 comes out, Rob, uh, and you write a you-are-there sense of quarter-to-quarter -quarter activity at Enron, uh, as, as compelling reading as that may be, you may want to make a computer game out of it. I could imagine a, uh, Enron, the game where young corporate executives at Enron have to deal with business activity and political events as they occur. But then again, maybe I'm just an outlier, and maybe the market wouldn't be that big for such a game. But anyway, 
we have a few minutes, so we have time for your questions and Rob and Bill's answers. And we hopefully will exhaust all of your questions before we head upstairs to uh, attend to that proverbial free lunch that the Cato Institute uh, habitually provides. Let me start in the back of the room here. Why don't you wait for the microphone, identify who you are so we know you're not Ken Lay's son, and then uh, direct your question to one of our two panelists. Uh, Peter Whitney, uh, Duke University. Um, After Enron collapsed, I read about an article that appeared in Fortune magazine about six or seven months before, written by Bethany McLean. Uh, And I went back and read that and and read about the story, how she was assigned an article. She was 27 years old. It was expected to be a puff piece on this, you know, wonderful new model of a company. And she asked a short – she wisely – said, well, what's a contrarian view? Found a couple of short sellers, one in particular, and said, well, why are you shorting it? And then he went to the annual report, uh, maybe the one you showed us, and he found in the footnotes some of the, well, what I would call nonsense. I mean, you know, Blockbuster, they had a trial with something like a 1,000 houses and booked uh, I don't know how many million dollars profit on something that was non-existent. And uh, so then she started writing a tough article and the report is that Ken Lay tried to have the fortune editor spike the, the report and went ahead. But when I went back and read it, um, I, did, I didn't know this at the time. I was working overseas. But when I went back and read it, I wonder why, if someone didn't read it, why Enron didn't collapse sooner. Because it was a devastating indictment of what was going on, on there. And somebody would either have had to contradict her. Or, uh, or uh, I, if I'd read it and I'd have been a stockholder, I would have unloaded my stock right away. So I'd, were you aware of this article at the time, and what did Enron do? Um, as an employee, um, I have a conflict of interest. You know, I'm looking at the Enron stock price every day when I enter the building, when I'm on the elevator, and it perverts uh, your thinking on this. And in retrospect, and this all gets back to Ken Lay, he was a master of the conflict of interest. And, for example, uh, 15 out of the 17 uh, uh, stock analysts had a, a buy or strong buy on Enron at one time, and those analysts in various ways were getting perks from the company. They use a private plane, do this or that. But there was a tremendous peer pressure uh, 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 put on all sorts of people. Another example, the Ken, Lay, the Ken and Linda Lay Foundation gave checks to literally hundreds of nonprofit organizations all around Houston and, and elsewhere. And so they're on the Enron bandwagon. And there's a group think and a peer pressure going on here where the contrarians, well, you're wrong. So there's an incredible uh, arrogance and group think going on here. And when you look at the whole story, it's like Ken Lay comes out of an Ayn Rand novel. Uh, he is, a, uh, he is the, the second-hander uh, par uh, excellence. And uh, there's conflicts of interest uh, everywhere. So in retrospect, it seems so obvious uh, what the problems were, you know, why didn't the company uh, implode sooner. But you see uh, uh, the modus operandi going on and um, um, – People were not thinking clearly. And it's that same peer pressure that's being put on uh, the so-called deniers in the climate debate today. I mean, this is just it's, – it, it, it happens in a lot of different areas, and we've got to guard against things like arrogance and groupthink, and that gets right back to the science of success. You asked me, me what's the greatest threat today? 
I don't think it's statism. I think it's arrogance in bad mental models that lead to the bad ideas that lead to uh, statism. Rob, does that also explain why so many uh, uh, senior employees at Enron Corporation had so much of their uh, stock value in, in Enron stocks? <laughs> I mean, I was just I was just amazed to discover all the personal losses associated with people who had all their economic eggs in Enron basket. If they were the brightest people in the room, what the heck were they doing so undiversified? And you see that again at Lehman and Bear Stearns and elsewhere, all these bright people managing other people's money, making the most fundamental economic mistakes. Well, there's only a, a few uh, Enron employees that really knew what was going on, and they were bailing out. It was sort of an atlas shrugged at Enron. Good people were leaving quietly. Good people were just taking their paycheck. But for most of us, we didn't know what was going on, and, yeah, we were uh, drinking the Kool-Aid. You're in front. Hi. I'm Swami Ayer from the Cato Institute, and I'm from India. Uh, the story being told of Enron here is completely different from the story in India. Uh, that's closer to what Bill Niskanen raised. And I know there was a political economy model, a very strong one, which Enron tried. It was this, that there, are, there is now privatization and deregulation in a large number of third world and other countries. Utilities are being deregulated. There is risk in this. Others are reluctant to step in. Therefore, Enron will go rushing in with a huge offer. That particular thing will be linked, not to a market phenomenon, but to a fixed price which the government will guarantee. And Enron will ask for an extremely high price, saying, you know, I'm the first guy coming, so I'm entitled to a high amount. It rushed in, it signed all these deals. They were very profitable. They were so profitable that the governments who signed it were going bust, and they all reneged on it. In other words, the Enron model, as Bill says, which actually bust them, was not what happened in the USA. It signed these what looked like extremely profitable deals with governments the world over, and many of those governments, when they reneged, those things went completely kaput. So it is a model of bust political capitalism, but may I suggest that it's a, a much more useful lesson that comes out of those countries. You know, if you're going to strike a really good deal, please don't make it such a good deal that you make the other guy bankrupt, because then it turns out not to be a good deal at all. Well, remember that uh, the DeBall uh, uh, plant, we got taxpayer finance guarantees, or that might not have ever happened. Uh, Enron was a leading recipient of XM OPIC financing of any corporation. That's a political capitalism model. Myron Ebel. Thank you. Uh, Myron Ebel, Competitive Enterprise Institute. Thank you for this. It's uh, been very uh, stimulating. Uh, I'd like to ask, uh, it seems to me that the political capital model, and Rob, you touched on this, has is now focused on cap and trade for carbon dioxide. And you see Enron's fingerprints all over it through Jim Rogers, but you also see that the main promoter of this, uh, the main two promoters of this on Wall Street were Lehman Brothers, through, through their uh, a number of studies where they showed how they could get rich off of trading in this artificial market to be created. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt IV was one of the, the promoters of it. And Henry Paulson, who as chairman of uh, Goldman Sachs said that the biggest foreign policy mistake in the history of the United States was not ratifying the Kyoto Protocol. The biggest 
foreign policy mistake in the history of the United States. Uh, I, I wonder if you'd just comment on that. I know Lehman Brothers is very big, too, in wind power. Uh, but um, does that – I guess all I can say is the political capitalism model, uh, you can make money uh, with it, but you can lose a lot of money, too. But it's certainly uh, uh, encouraging uh, the wrong type businessman to, to be on top. In front. Gene Montgomery, uh, I understand. Uh, I think part of what you're what you're saying here in that um, I think government has a role to play in terms of making uh, the rule of law and general proper support of the of the economy. However, if you are starting to pass laws that gore somebody's ox unreasonably, let's say. Uh, or uh, you also have the opportunity to pass laws that unreasonably enhance somebody's ox. Um, it uh, kind of puts the, bon- the onus on the businessman to participate in that uh, operation, which I think is what you're describing political capitalism. My question is, if the company had been totally left on its own without having to face a um, set of tax rules, for example, and specific other government programs relating to its line of work uh, and the changes that had been made in regulations and in accounting practices, if they'd been completely left on their own to have an accounting system that worked for them in terms of providing information about what's going on in their business, I'm guessing you said they would have failed sooner. Um, yes. Is that correct? Right. Is there any other Well, I think um, you know what Enron could have been. Uh, there was a gentleman who was ready to take over for Kinlay in 1997, Richard Kinder. He didn't get the top job. Jeff Skilling became the new CEO. And Rich Kinder formed a company uh, with hard assets, uh, pipelines, uh, uh, storage, uh, oil gas, uh, oil natural gas. And he, he's a multi-billionaire now. And he could have taken Enron in a very different direction. And I imagine he would have cut back a lot of the unprofitable activities and gone to the core. Uh, another thing, uh, Enron never advertised this, but at the end they were making more money off coal than they were wind, solar, and everything else combined. And there's a funny story, if I can uh, tell it here uh, briefly. A coal executive was hired from St. Louis to come down and build up the subsidiary. And first week on the job, he's reading memos about how, uh, from Enron's PR department about how they're not going to publicize anything, that this is in conflict with uh, the, uh, Enron's image as a green energy company. And the coal executive, he's moved his family down, and he's gotten a commitment from the company. So he storms up to Jeff Skilling's office on the 50th floor and goes, what's going on here? You're de-emphasizing coal because Enron's a green energy company? And uh, Skilling's response was to smile and say, uh, Steve, Enron is a green energy company. The green we like is money. (laughs) 
I'm Bill Hederman, an old grad student of Bill Niskanen's and uh, was brought into FERC to set up the Market Oversight Investigations Unit during the Enron Adventures. Uh, just one point on uh, Bethany McLean, we actually had her come in and train our staff for a day, and uh, I thought it was a really good sign about the promise of capitalism, the way her editors stood there with her after Fastow came up and tried to rattle their cages about uh, not publishing the material. Uh, the point I wanted to ask was one lesson I drew from what happened is there is a need for some kind of oversight, I, I believe, and maybe that's even controversial uh, here. But my assessment is you do need some oversight. You know, if you have a football game, you need a couple of refs there. Uh, but it requires a much higher level of sophistication. And I don't see the way to bring the kind of sophisticated oversight into place in the restrictions we have on government hiring, et cetera. And I was, if we have another window of opportunity here that with the financial crisis, it, it looks like Sarbanes-Oxley was ineffective, do either of you have thoughts about, well, what comes in, is there a way to get this right the next time and, you know, backing off as much as anything else? But is there a way to, to set up a way that you can protect capitalism from the capitalist. Bill, you want to try that? <laughs> I think what we need we need another Reagan. Uh, that would be the beginning of wisdom on the matter. Um, I think it's important to emphasize that a number of people like, uh, you know, a number of firms like Microsoft and uh, like Walmart have done very well without asking for special favors, at least here in Washington, and uh, to emphasize uh, those, those kinds of examples. I, I, the third thing we need to do is to be very careful when there is a, an episode, anything like the Enron collapse or like what we've experienced in the last month, to avoid uh, an almost unlimited expansion of, of federal power, which is um, which hasn't ended, by the way, this this emergency bill for seven hundred billion dollars is is not the last of it. The, the Federal Reserve Board has almost unlimited authority to uh, to put money into the into the market in different ways, and they're doing it in any number of ways that are quite inconsistent with their history. Um, so we have to be very careful about episodes like this. Uh, I think it's important also to cultivate um, allies. One of the one of the one of the industries that was wisest in the in uh, the Enron issue was the business press. The first story uh, about what what was wrong with Enron was in the Texas edition of the Wall Street Journal. But the national edition didn't pick it up. Uh, the first story in a in a widely read business magazine was uh, the one in in uh, in Fortune in in I think February of 2001. Um, this was in the same magazine, which a month before had for the sixth year in a row judged Enron to be the most innovative company in the country. The same magazine, but uh, the the article about Enron. 
in in uh, in I think February was very was brave and was well informed. Uh, she had uh, good relationships with a guy who was a short seller in Wall Street, and uh, he fed her all kinds of information that that affected his business behavior. The third most important um, story about Enron came out, I think, in May of 2001 on an online business uh, magazine. Uh, so the business press has a very much better record on this matter than, the, say, the, the security analysts or, um, or the credit rating agencies and so forth. Well into the fall of 2001, the security analysts were, 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 uh, were, were building up Enron as being a great buy. And the um, credit rating agencies gave uh, Enron investment grade ratings until four or five days before they were bankrupt. So that they, uh, we need to we build we need to build up potential allies, particularly I think in the business press. And we can't count on we can't count on security analysts and and uh, credit rating agencies to uh, to give us the right information. Um. If I, if I could add to that, uh, I, th I think the alternative in, uh, interpretation of both Enron and the current financial crisis is that capitalism hasn't failed, but the mixed economy has failed. Uh, and the idea that we can uh, have more and more rules, have rule inflation to uh, check uh, unbridled self-interest or capitalism man, uh, capitalist man has unintended consequences. Getting back to Richard Epstein's uh, idea of simple rules for a complex world, I think this is the new model that needs to be uh, put into place. Well, on that note, it's a convenient time to adjourn our uh, talk and to head upstairs. Please join me in welcoming Bill and Rob for their remarks.